Hi, this is James Rudd with the Heart Podcast. Today, something a little bit different. I have an interview for you with Professor David Spiegelhalter, who is a medical statistician and an expert in the communication of risk. Basically, how we talk to the public and our patients about medical risk and how we can do that better. We have an interesting conversation all about communication of risk, how we can do it well and what to avoid. Also, we talk about the problems with the p-value and the 5% significance, p-hacking. What can we replace the p-value with? Should we replace the p-value? And finally, we get into artificial intelligence and the rise of the algorithm. And David has a strong view that algorithms should be subject to the same phases of clinical trials that we use currently for drugs and devices, so phase one to phase four, before they're introduced into widestream clinical practice. I hope you enjoy the show. David has also published a recent book, which is entitled The Art of Statistics, Learning from the Data. And uh, this is certainly not a paid podcast or a paid review, but I really enjoyed the book myself. And actually, as somebody who's been using and maybe misusing stats for a long time, in my research career, I learned loads uh, from it, uh, from a very good communicator all about statistics. So I hope you enjoy the show. And please like, subscribe, comment, all that stuff. Leave us a five-star review if you feel so inclined, because it certainly helps more people find the podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks very much indeed, David, for joining me today. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here in your office in Cambridge. And you are one of the experts, I would say, at uh, communication of risk and trying to make risk, particularly medical risk, more explainable and understandable to the public. And I wanted to perhaps start our chat by talking about the concept of cardiovascular risk. And I know you've pioneered this concept of heart age. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, I, I didn't make it up. I wish I had, because I do think it's quite a good idea. Um, it's this idea that's, con that's connected to the effective age of your organs, is what I'd say. You know, ideas of lung age have been around for, for years, where you measure someone's lung function. And uh, you say, well, you've got uh, the lung function of, of somebody, uh, uh, an average or a healthy person that's a lot older than you. So it's like you've, your lungs are older than your chronological age. And that's been a standard way of communicating, um, you know, the, the, the fact that somebody is, um, uh, is a, in a poor state of health and maybe could do something about it. So heart age is, does the same thing. It tries to say, well, you've got uh, your cardiovascular risk is that of somebody older than you, or maybe even younger than you, but who, who's you know, otherwise a very healthy person who got good indicators, and this would be their risk uh, at that age. So you can tell people, and the calculator is, it's a million of hit, millions of hits, the calculator on, on um, uh, NHS and, and Public Health England calculator, um, will, it will tell you, for example, you know, you've got a heart age, of 69 when you're really only 62 or something like that and 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 there's been some randomized trials that suggest that uh, providing this information can be quite motivating people to change their behavior and, and improve their indicators similarly um, telling someone's uh, there's evidence that uh, telling someone someone's lung age uh, can improve their motivation to stop smoking and i saw a section on the website where you talk about the effect on your 
effective age, if you like, of taking things like statins and uh, stopping smoking. And that's kind of built in, isn't it? You can play with the sliders and, and see how many life years you can gain. Yes, you can. Essentially, you know, you change your behaviour, you can make yourself younger is the, is the kind of idea. And uh, I think everyone quite likes the idea of being younger. Um, and I, I, I like that. I like that idea myself. I wish I were younger. Um, one of the issues about the current heart age calculator, where which um, in the it's had a recent front end, new front end and been promoted quite strongly. Um, I, I personally received quite <laughs> got criticism or comments from colleagues who were a bit fed up because they were these, you know, these middle-aged men, middle-aged and slightly aging men, and perhaps in their 60s, who were trying to really keep fit and we did a lot of exercise, and then they put in their their um, their risk factors, and it told them their heart age was older than them, and they were assuming it would say how what a youthful how youthful they were, and they were really fed up about this. But of course, they realised that the heart age current heart age calculator doesn't have fitness in there. You know, it should do. Uh, everyone knows, you know, that, that this can affect your cardiovascular um, uh, health, uh, but it's not in there. And that's because it's based on the Q-Risk algorithm, the Q-Risk lifetime algorithm, which is derived from a general practice data. And there's no good, you know, data source for fitness coming from the general practice databases. So, you know, it, it's a factor that, you know, one feels should be in an algorithm like that and, and isn't in there. So I hope that can be added in in the future. And you say it's been popular with with patients and the, and the general public. Lots of hits, millions of hits. It's not always very popular when it tells people um, <laughs> who wanted to show how young they were that it, they're older than them. But um, and I, my understanding, there's also this fear that it would drive people to go and you know visit their GPs because they they had slightly older heart age. Um, it's been around for ages. It's been used by very large numbers of people and. Um, and I, I don't think that has been a, an effect of it. But I think it is a problem with all of these um, risk communication tools. Um, if they get popular, if they're good and they're popular and people use them, you really want to know what the impact is. I mean, I regard these as in medical interventions, a bit like screening devices. And so you should have an idea of what the impact of those of those communication tools are. Um, and... It, and you should have an Im an idea of what the impact of these communication tools might be. And that's something at our centre here, the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication, tries to do. It tries to both put front ends on, on risk calculators, whatever, but then try to evaluate their impact. And I know you work a lot with psychologists and, and as you say, patient groups uh, to see if the message is getting through. Ex exactly. I think it's absolutely essential. It's been a revelation to me to work with practicing psychologists and of course patient groups but also web designers and community professional science communicators on you know just how important it is to get the, the packaging correct and um, and the, this is now exemplified in the front end we put on the um, uh, predict system for breast cancer and the new one for prostate cancer which a lot of work has gone into the design of those still more to do um, but in particular you know just basically telling people newly diagnosed people about what their survival prospects might be um, with or without certain treatments and certainly for the prostate ones also gives you the side effects estimated the actual percentage of people who can have some of these side effects after three years depending on the treatment you have and I think you know these are important considerations when if you're going to empower people to take more control over their lives have a make a more informed choice about what decision they're going to make then uh, these are important this is important information that should be available to them in a clear format and I'll certainly put links to those uh, websites in the show notes and one thing I looked at was 
just the uh, really nice visual presentation of the effect of having or not having chemotherapy, for example, on five-year survival, the same with radiotherapy. And it's a very interactive way of explaining the risks. I think it's, it's, it's a really interesting and exciting way of, of doing this. Uh, talking a little bit more about uh, maybe how medical journals deal with this and, and the mainstream press, David, what are some of the the, uh, the absolute classic, uh, shall we say, pratfalls of, of medical and scientific communication that you've seen? You've been in this business a long time. Yeah, and I tend to get wheeled out as a sort of, you know, policeman and, you know, to uh, criticise things. But that's part of the job of being a statistician, I suppose. Oh, it's a standard stuff. You know, the same old things, um, reporting relative risks rather than absolute risks, um, mistaking non-statistically significant for no effect and overclaiming uh, when you get a statistically significant result. All these things are just uh, are appalling misuses of statistics that happen again and again and again, and um, which it would be great if uh, things, those improved a bit. I know you're a big proponent of the Science Media Center. I've seen you commenting there on, on mainstream stories. Certainly, I'm, I'm a, a part of that, and I think that's a way of trying to improve things. Do you have any other uh, any other suggestions? Is this medical editors that need to step up? Is this the university press officers that are uh, exaggerating results, should we say, or putting a spin on results? Is this newspaper editors, journalists, scientists, all of us? All of them. Everyone's responsible. Um, you can't just blame journalists. Uh, there's a whole pipeline, you know, from the actual experiments or research that uh, people might do right through to what you might hear on the news or see in your newspaper or online. And um, and I think the fault can come from scientists. Um, many examples when they're exaggerating their importance of their work. Not And it's, this isn't a conflict of interest because they're in the pay of the pharmaceutical industry. It's because they, you know, would like to promote their careers. They think what they've done is important. Important, um, and in some areas where they've actually got agendas, you know, campaigns that they really feel strongly about. And then there's the journals that there's uh, insufficient peer review, and, and these exaggerations and misuse of stats are, are allowed through. Um, then there's the press officers, um, press officers who can um, exaggerate uh, and uh, you know selectively report things in order to get coverage. Although I think actually press officers are getting better on the whole. Um, they had received a lot of criticism in the past but the science media center is working closely with them and that's getting better then you've got the the journalists who frankly my feeling is that the specialist journalists tend to be trying to do a fairly good job then you've got the sub-editors the people who stick the clickbait headlines on the thing they're absolutely dire headlines that you can get from those which i've got a wonderful collection of and i i i love getting laughs from by just showing the appalling headlines that are put on stories things like uh, going to university gives you gives you cancer brain cancer yeah, that, that, that was the classic one um, that was uh, that was a not very interesting study that showed that richer men in Sweden had a slightly higher rate of brain tumours, and the and the um, the the the, the authors quite rightly said, well, this could be an artifact because they get better follow up, better medical care. Uh, but the but the press office said that, oh well, you know, men with higher education get more brain tumours, which wasn't what the study was about, but it maybe is a better story. And by the time we got to the Daily Mirror, it was why going to university increases the risk of having a brain tumour. And uh, yeah, this is not a very good pipeline of evidence to feed to the public. Let's uh, let's carry on along this uh, furrow, if we may, David. You've you were 
a signatory on a letter uh, in Nature just a couple of weeks ago talking about why we should see the end of the p-value, the famous 5% p-value. Am I misquoting you? Yep. There's nothing wrong with p-values. P-values are just fine. It's the dichotomization of p-values into significant and non-significant. That's what the article in Nature was about, which got more than 800 signatories of statisticians and others saying time to retire the idea of statistical significance. Now, I've, I've used statistical significance. I've taught it. It's in my book, et cetera, et cetera. But I've always felt uncomfortable about it. It is not part of rigorous statistics in any way. It's a sort of accepted practice that's just been passed down. Um, and to try to take, you know, you do a fantastically complex study and you do absolutely meticulous experimental design and you do all this, and then to reduce the final result to a simple yes, no, pass, fail, discovery, not discovery, significant, not significant, I think it's a parody of science. And and I, I have I've rumbled about this for some time, but and maybe, you know, being too cowardly to promote it too strongly myself, but now this group has come together under this, this banner, I, I, I realise goodness me yeah this is this is really absurd and it's not even to do with the misuse of statistical significance of which there is a massive amount there was a recent study of treatment you know just a couple of just in february in jama um of a treatment for septic septic shock you know with a huge 40 percent mortality rate and a new treatment showed a nine percent reduction in 28 day mortality rate but because p was less was 0.06 rather than 0.05 they'd said there's no effect of the treatment and the headlines in the medical press reporting oh, no this new treatment has no effect at all this is complete nonsense utter nonsense i know which i would want i'd want the new treatment of course i would just because it didn't quite cross that magic boundary is complete nonsense and the point is that Statistical significance is fine when you've got an actual decision to be to make. You may not use 0.05. For example, the FDA to approve a drug requires two, um, you know, two independent trials, both at 0.05. Um, so, but they want two trials, so the P, joint p-value is, is a lot less than that. Um, uh, other things, you know, with the Higgs boson, the, the decision to announce this as a discovery, they wanted a p-value of less than one in three million. They're five sigmas. So, and that's fair enough. If you're going to make a real decision. But the idea that every every medical paper must decide, make, must make a decision about whether this is significant or not is, is a, I think, a parody of science. Now, it's not quite clear what should be in its place, I must say. Um, certainly exact p-values. Nothing wrong with p-values are just fine. But we can have confidence intervals. We can have um, assessment of, of the quality of the evidence. And many people are saying that, you know, the p-value itself is also a little bit of a red herring. The crucial thing is, can you even believe the p-value, you know? The, 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 which I tend not to because there's so much what's called p-hacking when people are, by using bad designs, by fiddling, not fiddling through the possible outcome measures, um, by, you know, just reanalyzing. I always say I could get a p-value. If you'd sent me that clinical trial, I could have got it less than 0.05, I bet. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I wouldn't, of course, because I have integrity. But, you know, of course you can if you try hard enough. And um, so I, I, I think it's terribly important. The quality of the, of the evidence is actually much more important than this magic boundary. I mean, I've certainly had letters from uh, journal editors where we've submitted work with a p-value of, say, 
0.09 and we've claimed a trend towards significance or important results and they said no no you can't use that word it's not significant it's yeah. a negative trial Absolute so nonsense if you say 0.09 i mean if if that's two-sided then that means that you know the one sided is is 0.045 that means there's more than a 95% confidence the treatment is effective in a one sided way and if you take a bayesian perspective you might say 95% i have 95% probability that this treatment is effective to say the treatment is not effective is total nonsense no the evidence might not be convincing enough to change your treatment and or the fda doesn't matter doesn't mean it doesn't work so don't throw the baby out with don't the bathwater. And, and that is really shown very clearly when you get a meta-analysis, when people put evidence together. All this significance nonsense and pivots are completely ignored. All that matters is what the data was. And finally, David, I've been reading your excellent book this week, and there's a, a very meaty chapter in there all about machine learning and how machine learning is going to take over the world. It's going to make uh, radiologists and doctors like me completely unemployable. What are the kind of... <laughs> Maybe that's not true. Hopefully it's not true. What are the kind of data sets and complex problems where you see machine learning having some sort of advantage over what we might call traditional statistical techniques? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I don't say that, of course. I'm extremely sceptical about, <laughs> about the rise and claims being made about AI in medicine in particular. And, um, and I emphasize, you know, in, both in the book and in talks I'm giving, you know, hugely that we need to be, have a, a you know, real healthy skepticism of the claims made about AI systems uh, that will give diagnoses or prognoses and things like that. And I also think it's, it's, it's a bit of an unhealthy debate about whether or we use, you know, whether something is a deep neural network or whether it's a, a, a regression analysis, it seems to me is almost completely irrelevant to the task of making predictions or making diagnoses. The crucial thing is, does it work? Now, and, and you know, very often is, is found actually rather traditional statistical methods do work rather well. There's lots of examples where that's the case, where you don't need all the fancy stuff. Oh, I quite like some of the fancy stuff. I think it's rather cool. Um, and uh, there are situations when it can work very well. I think, I think the progress in image and natural language processing, of course, but the progress in image analysis is quite extraordinary. And I think I wouldn't say that, you know, people, you know, medics who are specialized in reading images are going to be out of a job. But I do think that their, say their job is going to be enhanced uh, by uh, certainly screening, perhaps early screening by, by uh, algorithms will or guidance and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that's going to be a great benefit to the profession and, um, and, and, and the general public. So I think in terms of image analysis, there's enormous possibilities in those. I, I, when it comes to more general, you know, trawling through medical records or uh, diagnoses and things, I'm I'm more sceptical. Um, but of course, we'd be great if we could make better use of information. Uh, whether this th whether the whether the algorithm, actual algorithm being used, is based on some you know clever machine learning technique or whether it's based on simple regression, I regard as less relevant compared with evaluating whether it's any good or not. And um, I push two things that we should be always, be always ask. What is the trustworthiness of the claim made by the algorithm? In other words, can you believe what it says uh, when it gives a prognosis or a diagnosis? And what, what you immediately, uh, what that question that raises is, does it know what it doesn't know? 
you know, can it be un- can it say when it's uncertain? Because it doesn't know how long you're going to live, and so it'll tend to give a probability, but it doesn't even know what's wrong with you either. Are those probabilities reliable? Does it know what it doesn't? Does it know when your case is different from one it's seen before in its database, or that you're an outlier? Does it know that? Does it know its limitations? So can you believe what it what it's actually saying to you? Another aspect of that, can it explain what it's saying to you? And that's where some simple techniques might have a big advantage. In a regression, you can see what's being weighted. Can it explain why it came to its conclusions? That's absolutely vital. The other aspect that I think is, is incredibly important is the trustworthiness of the claims made about the system by the developers. Can you believe it when they say it's better than doctors, this will, this will um, you know, help the medical profession, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread? Is it, can you believe it? Well, I don't believe it at all until I've seen a decent study being done. If, if, these, if, these, um, you know, if this technology is of such benefit to our health, then we should start considering it certainly as a medical device, if not as a medical intervention. And we should be demanding the stringency of evaluation that would be applied. Well, I think we should at least model this on what what would be needed before you can sell a drug. You know, I think we should be thinking about the phases of development, uh, right through to phase three studies, in which would be trials in practice, measuring what does it actually add to what's there already. It may look cool, it may be able to do stuff on its own, but what does it actually add to what is there at the moment. We cannot assume that just because something works on a database or in a laboratory setting is going to be of benefit in clinical practice. And uh, I think we really need to be assured about that before we get so gung-ho about how this is going to revolutionise everything. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. And I know there's within medicine, uh, you might say, well, there would be, but there is a big push uh, now to to hold companies to account and uh, to see some of these phase one, phase two, phase three, and phase four type studies uh, out there. So I hope that does happen. Thank you very much indeed, uh, David, for your time. Uh, it's a great pleasure to chat with you. And I will put links to your latest book, uh, The Art of Statistics, uh, in the show notes. And I'll also put links to the Winton Center as well so people can find it. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Thank you.